Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. you to look just briefly with uh, your scripture text open in front of you at the paragraphs that we read uh, just a moment ago. Uh, what you notice is that it is divided into three sections. There's a poem at the end of it with a tear-jerking story, but uh, you don't get that unless you've been to seminary, right? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, in verse 24, it says, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, it says, for this reason, God gave them up. In verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Those words, God gave them up, are frightening words. And they are wrapped in the wrath of God against sin. Paul's saying, you know, there... There came a moment in human history, in particular points in history, uh, you might think of Sodom and Gomorrah as being a, a, a typical instance of that, but you see it throughout the pages of, of, of history as you study cultures and nations. You'll see a society that adopts immorality as, as being moral and normal, a society that becomes ingrown on itself and proud of itself, a, a society that becomes acquisitive and power-centered and, and uh, greedy and materialistic. And eventually what you'll see is that society begins to crumble from the inside and eventually the nation falls because of some invading power from the outside, no better than they are, and yet the crumbling within, a sign of the wrath of God because God gave them over to their own sin. Theologians argue about whether that's an active or a passive expression of the wrath of God. Let me tell you, when you're suffering under the wrath of God, you won't much care whether it's active or passive. You will know it's the wrath of God. And so three times over, Paul says, God gave them over. Describes it in different ways, but essentially this, God gave them over to his wrath. And let me ask you this, have you ever felt as though God has just given up on you? Have you ever come to the moment where you thought, wow, I've, I've just blown it so badly for so long, so deeply, so profound is my sin, that God must have given up on me. There's nothing left for God to do in my life, and, and uh, there's no way to, to reclaim me. I've, I've failed so often. God must have given up on me. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever experienced that? What I want to tell you is if you've ever thought to yourself, God has given up on me, if you've thought that to yourself, it is proof that God hasn't. <laughs> proof that God hasn't. Because if God gives up on you, he will take away the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. He'll take away from you that, that movement of grace that inclines your heart to the good and to the righteous. If God ever gave up on you, you wouldn't care. It just wouldn't matter to you. You'd, you'd be like, like Pharaoh. The Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses. He hardened his heart, and then finally the Scripture says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What I can tell you is Pharaoh didn't care. He didn't care about God. 
He wasn't worried. Oh, no, the God of Israel has, has given up on me. He didn't care. But if you care whether or not God has given up on you, that's a sign of God's grace bringing a conviction in your heart, and it's proof that he has not yet given up on you. The Scripture says, and God gave them over. They reached a point where that sin was so, so vast that God used this society, used this, this culture, used these people to illustrate the meaning of his wrath in the time frame of history and that wrath that is expressed for all eternity in the judgment. And so Paul says, God gave them over. And in verse um, 24, it says, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, dishonoring the bodies among themselves. That's what God did. God gave them over. But look at the next verse because that tells us why God did it. God gave them over, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And oh, by the way, the creator is worthy of all honor and glory and blessing. The, 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 the creator is worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen? That's what the scripture says. But the reason his wrath was poured out is because we substitute the truth of God for a lie. And we are so good at it that we take the truth about God and we twist it and we distort it and claiming that we're still talking about the truth, we really tell a lie about God by telling only half the truth. I'll give you an example of that. There's only one God. We all know that. There's only one God. It's a precious truth. There is one God. You do not have to search the mountainsides and the valleys. You don't have to go across the land. You don't have to search for the best God among many. You don't have to search for the one God who can serve your needs among many. You do not have to search for uh, the one God among a plethora and a panoply of God, gods in order to have a God that you can relate to. There is one God, and he is everywhere present and everywhere sovereign and Lord. There is one God. What a gracious, glorious truth that is. But we take that truth and we say, there's only one God, and what that means is everybody gets to God in their own way. No matter what you're doing, whatever your religion is, you're, all paths lead to God. You know, no matter what road you're taking in religion, it leads to God. Let me tell you something, not all roads lead to the same place. I know that because I trusted a Garmin once. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you this story, but I was lost. I want you to know I was lost, and this road was not taking me where I needed to go. I won't go into the story, but it has to do with a bald-headed kid and a banjo. I mean, it was really bad stuff. <laughs> but we tell this story to try to soothe ourselves. You know, well, everybody's just going to God in their own way, and that is a lie. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is only one way to know the Father. And that is to know him as his grace is poured into your life by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and you're transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit and you come to fall on your knees at his throne of grace and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is only one way. But we profess to be wise and we come up with this little theological construct where everybody's worshiping the same God. Doesn't matter how you get there. We're all going the same road. You know, and it's balderdash. The only people who say that are people who've never studied world religions. Anybody who studies world religions will tell you that, 
well, uh, Christians believe in God. Buddhists don't believe in, there is a God at all. Buddhists don't think there's sin. Christians think there's something called sin. Christians think you go to heaven. Buddhists don't think you... How can that be the same God? I mean, it's just silly. It's, just, it, you know, it's, it's silly. It's the kind of things that we say in our sophomore year, and, uh, and then, then we learn better. But he says that you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I'll give you another example. God is love. What a great truth. God is love. By the way, the next time you have a friend who's, who's not a believer... Um, and they say something like, well, I just think God is love. I have no idea. <laughs> you know, shock. <laughs> but, you know, I just think God is love. Here's what you say. Yes. Where did you get that? What do you mean? Where did you come to the conclusion that God is love? Everybody knows God is love. No, everybody doesn't know God is love. The Aztecs didn't know God is love. <laughs> the Hindus don't think of God as love. Buddhists don't believe in God, okay. But, uh, you know, most world religions teach a God who is spiteful, whimsical, you know, vengeful, a God who's just out there to get you for his own amusement. The idea that God is love comes from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Do a word search on your Quran. You can get a Quran on the, on the Internet, and you do a word search on it. It's great stuff. Try to find where it says that God is love in the Quran. You don't find it. You find places where it says God loves the good people, hates bad people, bad. But you don't find the idea that God is love. And to the extent that the Quran talks about God being love, it, it's barred from the Judeo-Christian tradition. It comes from the Jewish Christian experience of God as he revealed himself. So God is love. It's a wonderful, marvelous truth. But the way we distort that, we say, well, God is love, and so as long as we love everybody, everything's okay, right? Yeah. That's all we need is love. Yeah. Yata da da da, right. Okay, that's, that's all we need. <laughs> as long as we love each other, it doesn't matter what we do. After all, we're in love, you know. We love each other. But it's not okay. Our sense of love doesn't make it okay because God is not defined by our understanding of love. Our understanding of love is to be defined by who God is. You see, it's not as though we know what love is. By the way, you don't. You don't have the foggiest notion what love is. I mean, really, do you? I mean, you, you ask your mother, you know, I asked my mother, what would I be? She said, would I be pretty? Would I be? No, that's a different song. <laughs> but, you know, you, you ask your parents when you grow up, how will I know I'm in love? What was, what was the brilliant answer your parents gave you and said, how will I know you're in love? And they, did they say, well, what you'll find is that the existential nature of your being will be subsumed under the existence of another, and you will find that you will take gratification in the surrender of yourself into the being of another self, and there will be... No, what did they, what did they say? You'll know. <laughs> Boy, there's genius going right, you know. <laughs> See, we don't know what love is, but we decide in our arrogance, we know what love is. God is love, therefore God must be what I think love is, and my love, by the way, lets me get away with a whole lot of things that are fun and that I like to do, because after all, we love each other. And instead of living up the truth of who God is, we adopt a lie about God. 
give you another example. God is the creator. Wow. That's the first thing we learn in the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And this creative activity of God, this creative power of God is unending. Um, you, you, You and I, we come into existence because God is our creator. We are sustained in our existence because God is the sustainer of his creation. And so to say that God is creator is to realize that the entire universe depends on God's work and power and will for us and in sustaining us. it's, It's a marvelous truth that God is creator. He is not creation. He's not a part of the universe. He's not just like us, only a little bit better. He's not just like us, only he's gotten a little bit of a head start. But God is creator so far and away above and beyond us that we could not possibly imagine who he is. And yet he has given us a revelation of himself, particularly in Jesus Christ. But God is creator is a marvelous truth. And here's what we do with it. Well, God made everybody... Well, there's a genius. God made everybody. He made me the way I am. That's the way God wants me to be. God made me this way. And then we throw in something like, and God don't create no trash, you know, that that kind of thing. (laughs) Here's the deal. As created by God, we are yet stained by sin. And created by God, we are yet a part of a fallen, broken universe. I'll give you an example. Some of you can relate to this. Uh, There's a certain biochemical um, component to depression. Um, Depression has many uh, causes, and I don't pretend to understand it, but um, as I've gone through the experience, what I've noticed is that there is a biochemical component to it. And and as, as, uh, as such, there's also sort of a genetic component to that, um, my mother went through a kind of depression in, in her life, and, and my grandfather, I don't know if he was ever depressed, but he caused others to be. So there was, there was no, that, that's not fair, but, but there was, you know, there, there's sort of a family history of, of sort of a, a tendency towards depression, and um, some of you know what I'm talking about. You, you've come from families where depression was a, was a reality in your parents and might be a reality in your life, and now you're doing your best to try and, um, you know, train up your children so they have the skills to survive it. Um, if and when it it, it comes their way. But there's sort of a a biological, genetic component to depression. There are other things involved too, too. I'm not not just simplifying it to that. But there is a component, a predisposition to depression in some uh, people. And God created us that way. But he doesn't want us to stay there. Now, it's not his design that we go through life with the curtains drawn and the lights turned out, a blanket over our heads, sucking our thumb and asking for mama. That is not God's design. We were born that way, created that way. But God has something more for us and something greater for us and something far exceeding anything we could imagine. That's God's design for our lives. And when you come to Christ, you get all the tools and all the resources of, of, of this, uh, the truth of Scripture. You get the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what happens. You still go through depression, and you still struggle with it, and it still comes and goes in your life. But here's the deal. It is not the master of our lives, and it doesn't define us. It's a part of what, what, what's going on, but God is victorious and one day will stand before the throne with an everlasting, eternal joy that is unbroken and unending. And we will sing praises to the God who has victory and power over our depression. We don't see it all yet, but we see enough of it to know that God is able. See, just because you're born 
a certain way doesn't mean that's what God wants for your life. What God wants for you is the richness and the fullness of, fullness of life in the Spirit, the abundant life in Jesus Christ. That's what God wants for you. Okay? So we take this little truth about God, that God is creator, and we twist it and distort it to say, that God created me the way I am. Therefore, that's what he wants me to be. Therefore, that's what he wants me to do. And we live a lie, and it's killing us. It's killing us because we're settling for something that's not a part of what God wants for us. So Paul says, God gave them up, and the reason he did that is because they exchanged the truth of God. English says for a lie. The Greek says for the lie. And the lie is that you can swap the creator for the creature, and you can worship the creature rather than the creator. And by the way, the creator is blessed forever. Amen. You see? And that's why the wrath of God comes. It's because of our idolatry. It's because we're living a lie. Well, let's, let's read on and, and try to get through this this morning. Um, where are we? Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And uh, I, I won't go into reading the rest of the passage. It's, it's familiar enough to you by now. But what he says is, because of our rebellion and, we, and we're living the lie, God gives us over to his wrath. And, and, and what that means is we live out the consequences of our sexual immorality. Let me share with you something that Jesus said about sexual morality. He said, if a man looks on a woman with lust in his heart, he has already committed adultery with her. See, right now is where all the men in the church get quiet, real quiet, because that nails every one of us. Every one of us. By the way, I think that verse is even stronger than that, but I won't, I won't go into it now, but sometime ask me about it. But it, it, it is just an inescapable um, spotlight that shines on the inclination of the human heart towards immorality. And that's where we are. And Paul says, when we live the lie... We say, God, we don't want your morality, and we don't want your design for the home. We don't want the, the way that you, you design the sexual relationship to be something that brings a man and a woman together for the purpose of creating children. And then after the children come, you ever wonder, well, why do you keep having sex if you already have the children? Here's why. It brings the father home to the mother to raise the children together when you do it right. Okay? That's the design is to bring a man and a woman, make them one flesh, so that a little child knows there are two people. Under the ideal circumstance, there are two people looking out for him, a mom and a dad. But we don't need that anymore. We're much, much smarter than that. Sociologists tell us that. Uh, I don't know who told the sociologists. They were smarter than that. But anyway, they're, they're, we're, we're all smarter than that. And so we live out our immorality, and we find the home breaking up. We find the family breaking up. We look at children whose lives are being absolutely destroyed by broken homes, whose lives are being destroyed as they're torn apart. And all the while we're saying things like, children are resilient. They'll get over it. They never do. You didn't. You didn't. Why do you think your children would? God gave them over yeah. to, to just go down the path. of Their chosen um, expression of immorality, you know, 
He highlights the one that, that you know, is, is the eye catcher, the one that's most apparent, the one that would really get the attention. But it, frankly, it's all the immorality God gave them over, and that's what happens when you live the lie. But I want to get to the end of this, this passage of Scripture. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to be not, not to be done, to do bad stuff. And here's what they are. By the way, there's, there's, depending on how you count them, there's, there's almost two dozen sins listed here. When I saw that, I thought, I could be preaching for half a year on this verse. <laughs> you may thank me later that I, I was led not to do that. But here, here's what it says. Led to, be, led to do what ought not to be done. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness, covetousness. You know what that is? In the Greek word, if you look up the Greek word for covetousness, uh, the translation is something like this, chasing the American dream. <laughs> That's what the Greek says. It says it better than that. But, you know, chasing the American dream. Gotta have more. Gotta have stuff. Gotta have money. Bigger house, bigger car, better vacations, and a boat. <laughs> you know, I've, I've got to have these things. That's who I'll, I am. Covetousness is the acquisition of stuff, and thinking your life is defined by material possessions, by money. And think about all the nutty stuff you've ever done because you thought you had to have money, and you didn't really trust God to take care of you. Think of all the ways you've sabotaged your life because you were covetous, greedy, acquisitive, had to have stuff and things. You know, we, okay, you're, you're getting this anyway. We get, we, we get all hung up on this passage. Oh, it's talking about homosexuality. That, that's a terrible thing. Homosexuality, a terrible thing. Greed. Greed. You want to see the wrath of God poured out? Just live for money. Greed. Where was I? Covetousness. Malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Buckle your seatbelts. They are gossips. Hmm. That word... The, the, the Greek word for gossip um, it comes from a, a word for to whisper. A gossip is somebody who whispers. Did you hear what happened? No, I don't know what happened. Really? Yes. And then, I can't believe it. Oh, yes. But we don't have gossip in the church. We share prayer concerns. I want you to be praying for my brother over here. Really? Yeah, I want you to pray for him because you won't believe what's going on. Bless his heart. No, it's okay now. <laughs> Gossip. Spreading tales. Talking about people. By the way, it amazes me how I believe what others say about other people. You know, for, for some, I, I call this a rookie mistake. You know? 
I'm, I'm 60 year old. No, I'm, I'm 64, going on 65. That's why I, I, I vote for Medicare now. <laughs> but, but anyway, parts A and B. But, <laughs> but it astounds me that I'm still making rookie mistakes because when somebody says, Pastor, you need to know about so-and-so, this, that, and the other, and I believe them. I never stop and say, oh, yeah? Who are you? Well, I happen to be his wife, and I, <laughs> no. But, you know, we believe stories so quickly. You know? we, we partake in the gossip. You ever tell a tale about somebody, said something unkind about them behind their back, whispering. And the Bible says that as bad a sin as you can imagine, gossip is just as bad. Gossip. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, trash-talking. We live in a culture that's, that celebrates trash-talking. You can't play sports now without trash-talking. That's why I can't hit three-pointers. I don't know how to trash-talk. <laughs> I had to quit church softball. I couldn't trash-talk. Yeah. I'm just too nice. <laughs> Why did you laugh? <laughs> boastful. Boastful is a word. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. He's writing to adults. Look, I, I know some of us have issues with our parents, you know, and we're, we're trying to iron those out in our adult years. But ultimately, the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. At some point, you've got to honor your father and your mother. But instead, we put them out to pasture. When the Bible clearly says... That when your parents reach the age of retirement, you are to take them in and to feed them and clothe them and to give them all manner of goods. Where is it? There. <laughs> See? There's no point preaching it if you can't benefit from it. <laughs> okay. That's why I vote for Medicare. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Call lawyer tomorrow. <laughs> Change the... Okay. Where am I? Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Did anybody get through this verse unscathed? These things earn the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Don't you ever point at a small group of people off to one side as though, hey, they get the wrath of God, but me, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Read the whole passage. God gave them over because of these kinds of things. And not only, even though we know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them because we're in a, a little conspiracy of sin in which I won't talk about your sin, you won't talk about my sin, we won't bring it up, we'll just, just live because God loves everybody and we'll do that, and we'll never talk about sin because after all, we don't want to give it up. And that's where we are. And that's what's the matter you. It is. 
to your idolatry, leading to your sin, and it earns the wrath of God. Now here's why we had to spend time these last three, four weeks, I forget what it is, the, the time on the wrath of God. Because until you understand the magnitude of God's wrath against sin, you will not weep when you read Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We deserve wrath. But God has taken his wrath and put it upon his son who took our place. And Jesus Christ, suffering the wrath of God for us, takes away our sin. He's our propitiation. And we are made whole before the Father's throne. And that's our marvelous God. We're living alive, folks. But Jesus Christ brings us to the truth. And so my, my prayer for you this morning, and, and the challenge, if you want the challenge this morning, is that you would just bring it all to the Father's throne. All the sin, all the rebellion. You know, and it, it's... It, 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 don't think for a minute that it's a case of, well, Father, here is my sin, and I'm going to try to do better. Father, here's my sin. I've been trying to do better so long I can't do. I, I, I know I can't do it, but I lay it at your feet. And, Father, let the blood of Jesus cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And you may keep on struggling. You may keep on stumbling. You may have that thing, that besetting sin that keeps coming back and coming back, and you're going to struggle with it. You might struggle with it from here until you get to heaven, but it'll be for the glory of God when he takes it away and makes you pure to stand before the throne of his grace. And my challenge to you this morning is to bring all the sin to the Father's throne. Plead the blood of Jesus and let him cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because until you do, you'll be living a lie, and it'll kill you. Let's pray together. Father, the sins we know about in our lives are, are enough to keep us before your throne, kneeling in confession. But we realize there, there's things going on, and we don't even know it. We are indeed weak and shallow. We are, we are so in love with our self-righteousness. We are so taken with our own goodness. Father, forgive us. Forgive the sin that we thought was unforgivable. And Father, remake what we thought was absolutely broken and irredeemable. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of the blood of Jesus, bring cleansing and wholeness that we might rejoice in your presence and give you the glory and the praise to thank and glorify you for who you are and for what you have done for us through the power of the cross. Father, we worship you, adore you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>